Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. A week ago, we published Sterilized, Jess Engbertson's powerful feature story about the 60,000 people who were forcibly sterilized by states throughout the country over the past hundred years. We had so many questions about eugenics. We asked some scholars and researchers who have been studying eugenics, past and present, to join us in the studios of KQED Radio for a conversation. This is a first for Life of the Law, our first bonus episode, and we'd like your feedback. Before we get started, if you haven't already listened to Life of the Law's feature episode, Sterilized, I want to suggest you pause right here and go take a listen, then come back and listen in to this conversation. If you're caught up, let me introduce you to our guests. Professor Osagi Obasagi teaches constitutional law at UC Hastings and is author of Blinded by Sight, Seeing Race Through the Eyes of the Blind. Marcy Darnovsky is executive director at the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley. Alexandra Minnestern is a professor at the University of Michigan, and she joined us by phone. And Milton Reynolds is senior program associate with Facing History and Ourselves, a nonprofit international educational and professional development organization that engages with students of diverse backgrounds to promote a more humane and informed citizenry. Professor Minna Stern begins the conversation with an explanation of how eugenics and sterilization all began. So if you look at eugenics across the early 20th century, there's a few things you noticed. First is that it emerged across the globe, although it had different manifestations and different, it, a broad set of shared beliefs, but that played out differently from country to country. So there were eugenics movements, obviously, we know in Nazi Germany, in the United States, but also in places more distant, such as Argentina or Iran. So that's one thing, is it was a global phenomenon. One of the next parts of it was really there was this idea that society could be improved, society could be better by implementing ideas around, for the most part, breeding and mating and control of the body politique. So some of the foremost policies connected with the eugenics movement were policies such as immigration control, and then softer policies, as the uh, radio piece talks about, better babies contests or attempts at having fitter people mate with other fitter people. And on the kind of more negative or restrictive side of those policies were policies such as sterilization. And sterilization, you know, which started in Indiana in 1907 and continued, you know, marching across the 20th century, um, really involved the idea that certain people – uh, should be breeding and other people should not be breeding. And those that were identified as unfit, whether because they had, um, you know, intellectual disabilities, um, they had physical disabilities, they were seen as sexually deviant, often they just came from poor backgrounds. You know, it was an attempt at kind of controlling their reproduction for the benefit of society and for the benefit mm -hmm. of, in the eyes of many, public health. 
Can you talk a little bit about why this ideology was particularly attractive to elites at the time and those who had progressive, progressive political sensibilities? I think part of it had to do with the idea that these were secular ideas. They were secular ideas, but nonetheless had a pretty... Um, a pretty heavy moral component. So the idea was that they were also ideas from science that could be applied objectively, but with the idea of improving society for the common good and for the benefit of all. And this was also a period in which the welfare state was starting to emerge and build up, and which progressive government was slowly but steadily expanding. So one of the things that sounds a little bit strange but was true of the eugenics movement is that there was a real utopianism that was connected to it. But the undercurrent of that utopianism is what marginalized and discriminated against those individuals who were classified as unfit or undesirable. And some of the recent public conversation about American eugenics has focused largely on some of the uh, states on the East Coast, so North Carolina, Virginia. But some of your work has looked at what has looked at how eugenics played out on the West Coast. And can you talk a little bit about uh, eugenics, particularly uh, here in California? Definitely. So one of the big um, puzzles that I have sought to uncover in my scholarship was why was there such an expansive eugenics movement in California? And in just thinking about what happened in North Carolina and Virginia, both states that have now compensated sterilization survivors, you know, in each of those states, it was about 7,500 to 8,000 people that were sterilized, whereas in California, over 20,000 people were sterilized based on eugenic laws from 1909 when the law was first passed until the 1960s when the use of the law really went into decline. Some of the reasons have to do with the very same progressive uses of science that we were talking about before. You have, in the early 20th century, um, your own the kind of the, uh, a particular wave of migrants, of professional middle class, mainly white, you know, transplants who are coming from the East Coast who want to create California in their own image. And they want to apply science, they want to apply the law, they want to apply public health to create this new California. And this new California is a California that disparages much of the past, it disparages much of its Mexican origin population, and also there is a great deal of policing of the boundaries between white Americans at the time, um, so that the emergent middle class wants to, um, you know, kind of keep those that would be decried as misfits or often people of a lower economic strata or those with uh, less education wants to kind of keep them at bay. So one of the things that's really interesting and disturbing about California is that um, it had 10 different institutions from south to north um, in which these sterilizations occurred, and in two institutions in particular, one was a home for the quote-unquote feeble-minded, very much akin to the Lynchburg colony. Another was a psychiatric institution. Total in those two homes, over 10,000 sterilizations occurred, the bulk of them in the 1930s and the 1940s. And the superintendents in those homes were given free reign in many ways to pursue the eugenic plan that they saw most appropriate and to participate in their own type of, you know, attempted regulation of reproduction and containment of those deemed unfit. Well, thank you. Um, and so 
you know, one thing that's always uh, strikes me is, you know, when I teach uh, bioethics, I, I typically um, start off the semester with a, you know, a couple of, of weeks on the American eugenics movement. And I always start off the class asking my students, well, how many of you know about eugenics or what the eugenics movement um, was? And I, I'm always surprised by how few students actually know much about the eugenics movement. And for those who do know something about it, they will usually say something about Nazi Germany and the idea that eugenics was this kind of very isolated idea that happened in Eastern Europe at a very small point in time, but for the most part was not taken seriously. And so I'm always engaged in, in this rather long, lengthy process of getting students to understand the extent of eugenics is not simply uh, uh, an idea that happened in Europe at a particular moment, but as this global phenomenon. And I, I use this to, to, to turn to you, Milton, because a lot of your work uh, speaks to this issue of how do we educate our society and particularly our children around the uh, around the American eugenics movement and and I guess I want, I'll start off by asking you you know why do you why is it important to teach this particularly in primary and secondary schools so you know by the time I I um, students reach me by the time they're in law school um, they're at a point in life where most of their education is behind them and it's uh, the, the the they're interacting with eugenic ideologies um, at the end of their educational experiences rather than at the, at the beginning and a lot of your work is trying to get students to engage with eugenics um, both as a history as a theory as an ideology um, earlier on in their educational career so if you could talk about you know why that is so important I, I think for me it's really about helping people think critically and to help them understand the alignment between their perceptions or understanding of history and how they manifest their current civic energies or civic activities. I think one of the challenges that we face is that we tend to think about some of the legacies of eugenics in pretty narrow frames. And so just to, to, to sort of throw this out, we oftentimes talk about the idea of race as referring to people, and specifically people of color, oftentimes in the binary, but when you understand the history of eugenics, when you go back and you see the way in which the idea of race is being used, it's synonymous with nation. And so we think about the emergence of the modern nation state, it's conceived as a biological community or a racial community, and a community in which people are marked as fit or unfit, and then situated into a taxonomy of otherness. And so the way in which that shapes how resources are allocated, how opportunities are um, either afforded or denied, has huge implications for where we are today. And I think the inability to grapple with this history fundamentally truncates our democratic imagination because we can't see beyond the current moment as a function of the legacies. We tend to think about people's current positions in society as a function of their merit or lack thereof rather than the long fetch of history in which those opportunities have been afforded or denied systematically leaving us where we are today. And so I think for me, it's really about helping us not just think critically about the past, but also about the present, and more importantly, the future, because the reality is we have to figure out how to make this experiment democracy work, and we can't do that if we continue to countenance the loss or the underdevelopment of vast swaths of human potential. Mm -hmm. So we could talk about poor folks, people of color. We could talk about uh, people with disabilities or perceived disabilities. We could talk about people who identify in various different ways around uh, sexual orientation. So when we look at the broader impact of these ideas, it actually affects a number of people. You know, the ongoing surveillance of women's reproductive labor is not disconnected from these sets of ideas. And so how we imagine democracy has to do with how we understand the history of this or don't understand the history of this. Mm -hmm. And for something that was so 
pervasive and omnipresent in, in most of the highest, you know, the quote unquote, the best universities in the country. The idea that we've somehow been able to erase this history to me is is a is a fascinating mystery, but also something really important to sort of ferret out. I think it's, mm-hmm. and I think some of the tensions that we see in our society today are directly a result of sets of ideas that are connected to this, but remain unexamined. So I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit further in that direction because I think you touched on a really important point. Um, you know, I think there it's not going out on a limb to suggest that it's not an accident um, that this aspect of our history is kind of. Uh, uh, Missing from our uh, our the curriculum of, of most schools in the United States, so I'd like to ask you, uh, or at least push you more in the direction of um, why is that so? Um, what why why is it that um, this is this has not been a central part of how we educate our children about the past, and what are the implications for uh, for society when we um, walk around without a, a, a clear and robust understanding of where we've been with regards to eugenic ideologies and how that might inform current and future um, practices and engagements. So so a couple of thoughts on this. I mean, I think all societies have a desire to create a narrative of themselves that allows people to feel proud and to lean into the conversation and to feel invested. And I don't think that that's unique to the United States. I think that that's a, that's a function of the modern nation state, you know. Um, ha- having said that, oftentimes in the construction of these narratives, things that are repugnant, problematic, are excised from the narrative such that you know, the majority of folks can lean into it. I think one of the challenges we're facing that an increasingly larger segment of our population are connected to those narratives that are outside the master narrative, right? And so there's a contestation around the history. I think the other thing, and I, I need to do more reading on this, but I also think that the emergence of the Cold War and the aftermath of World War II is very significant and important. I think the idea that positioning democracy as an alternative to communism, one of the things that the U.S. has to do is to sort of clean itself up, for lack of a better word, and to present ourselves as a better of those two options. And I think one of the ways in which that happens is an interrogation of the history of Nazi Germany. And I think that that's an important history to interrogate because of the realities that took place there. But I think oftentimes in focusing on the Nazis as being the embodiment of everything evil, we disconnect ourselves from an investment in the same sets of ideas, and in fact, the relationship in some cases between some of the policies that the Nazis uh, enacted and their connections to American policies that were fundamentally predicated on the same idea. So there becomes a challenge of, of the affective load of thinking about the United States as having been involved in policies that were problematic in that same way, right? But we have to reclaim that history and begin to understand it such that we can un- we can comprehend the ways in which those ideas are still in many ways manifest in society, are being recreated or repackaged as race is now increasingly being articulated as genetics. Mm-hmm. So we move from race as biology to race as culture, you know, the culture of deprivation, cultural deprivation, now to this idea of sort of a genetic deficiency. So the repackaging of this protean ideology is is important to understanding how uh, modern democracy functions or doesn't function, as, as the case may be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's a that's a that's a great way to turn to um, how these old old eugenic ideas eugenic ideas are playing out in modern conversations. And so I'll turn down to you, Marcy. So Marcy, you're the executive director of the Center for Genetics and Society, an organization that's trying to bring a social justice and human rights approach to issues of new reproductive and, and genetic technologies. And uh, it seems like um, 
you know, in the conversations that you're engaged with on on, these, on how new human biotechnologies may have certain implications for certain vulnerable communities, it seems like a, a lot of the work that CGS is engaged in is trying to um, use the um, the lessons learned from the eugenic past as a way to understand what the implications for new technologies might be in the contemporary and, and in the future for for these for many of the same groups. So, can you talk a little bit about what the what we can learn from uh, our eugenic past to inform um, modern debates? Well, one place to start is where Milton left off with the idea that race can be understood as something that um, exists in one's genes and that people can be divided up into discrete groups that are identified racially. So this idea, which um, many people thought would be put to rest by the findings of modern genetics, in fact, has worked the opposite way. So in fact, we're seeing as you've documented, uh, Osagi, in some of your work and others as well, we're seeing a resurgence of understanding race as biology. And that has a lot of very pernicious um, consequences in medicine, um, where assumptions are made about diagnostics depending on a person's perceived or self-identified race. And just more generally, the idea that we are going to define people, we're going to define race in particular as something that's hardwired, that's that's on or off, you're in one group or you're not, rather than seeing humans as a common group with gradations of genetic variation. Um, these are really dangerous ideas. Um, they also distract us from understanding disparities that we see in society, racial disparities, we distract us from understanding those as culturally, socially, legally constructed, the results of big systems of injustice. Rather, we see them as biologically determined, and that has all kinds of negative consequences, of course. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Can, I, can I ask a question, Osagi, here? I'm kind of curious about um, the story that we just heard by Jess Angbertson is about us eugenics movement beginning in 1907 and going all the way up until in the 1970s, which, and I'm, I'm curious about how race played a part in that eugenics sterilization movement in the United States. And um, because when it began, I believe it was mostly white people that were being sterilized. Um, and I'm not sh I, I, it's very hard to get data about this. So I'm just curious about how did we move? How has that sh was there a shift in uh, first it was feeble mindedness of white people and then moved into a race issue? How did how does eugenics play a part in that? Well, I think one thing to keep in, in mind is that notions of whiteness change over time. So when we look at the early 20th century, what it meant to be white at that point was radically different from what it means to be white today. And so at that point, when you had um, particularly ethnic minority groups um, as, that were coming to the United States as a result of a large of, of, you know, of, of immigrations, um, or I should say uh, immigration from Eastern Europe, many of those ethnic groups were often thought of as um, were racialized as being different, as being inferior in ways that were not unlike the way that um, African-Americans and other racial minorities were thought of as inferior. So these groups were oftentimes um, targeted as, 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 as groups that were um, prime candidates for this type of, of eugenic interventions. And so notions of ethnicity, class, uh, uh, and all these other lines of difference um, make certain groups eligible for being um, exposed to type of eugenic interventions in a way that other groups were not. So it becomes a, 
interesting way through which difference gets understood across time and how uh, what what the consistent thread is that those whichever group is seemed as being vulnerable, as being different, as being other, as being not unfit. Um, those that the, the the demographics that may shift over time, but uh, the the categorization itself remains um, um, important for understanding how and why certain groups are are effective as opposed to others. I think it's also important to recall that um, eugenics worked differently, even in different regions and in different states in in the United States. So, um, and and also that eugenics was importantly a matter of state policy under these eugenic sterilization laws, but that there are also many, many more um, not completely voluntary, not sought sterilizations that have occurred across the country, across time, and with very significant racial and class um, stratification involved with those. So in southern states, people talked for decades about the Mississippi appendectomy, women who were sterilized often during childbirth, often without real any meaningful kind of consent, if any at all. And in California, on the other hand, um, you know, this history is actually just being uncovered by people like Alex Stern. And um, we're only now being able to document, as a result, a lot of the work that she is doing, in fact, that the sterilization of people with Spanish surnames increased over time as the California sterilization laws and practices went on in time. And if I could elaborate on that, excuse me, a little bit. One also has to sort of track the ways in which social policies sort of shift and the targets shift. So when we're talking about the, the the pre-war period, the threat is really of the southern and eastern uh, European immigrants that that Osagi references in the sense that they might pass for American or pass for white and American. So we oftentimes think about passing as a phenomenon of people of color rather than a phenomenon that, at least in this country, might be better understood by looking at the experience of European immigrants trying to come into the country. And the reality that is a function of Plessy versus Ferguson and other other uh, racialized laws is that people of color wouldn't have had access to the very facilities uh, that they gain access to later and then become targeted as they gain, as they're brought into the, 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 the family of democracy. And again, I think, you know, Osagi also mentioned the idea that white, whiteness is, is, is not a static, is not a static state. And, you know, and, and, and again, I think it's the ability to follow the language and the history that allows people to sort of understand that the way in which we talk about whiteness today is certainly not the way in which um, it was practiced, at least when we look at the, the histories of eugenics. Mm-hmm. I think the last piece about that is is also thinking about sterilization as having some economic incentives. Because, again, if people are deemed to be unfit, the taint, if you will, is carried forth in their progeny. And so by sterilizing people, not only are they no longer able to give birth, but it's a way of society managing its resources. And, and I think one of the things that's been interesting uh, because I know the film No Mas Babies has gotten some traction recently, and the, the Center for Investigative Reporting did some reporting on the prison sterilizations in California, is that when you look at the language used by the physicians um, that rationalize their decisions to sterilize folks, there's a great deal of continuity. And in fact, there's probably more continuity and change in terms of the rationales uh, that the use explain why these are important procedures and how society might benefit from them. So again, I think it's important to, to, to imagine that eugenics also impacts economic 
ideology, right? Who is fit and entitled to get resources or have access to society's resources and, and, and who isn't, right? And so even in the, in the clip that we listened to, the woman whose name I'm, I'm uh, missing right now, who was put in an institution, was then forced to work to pay for the very resources that she received as a function of being institutionalized, right? And so these extractive uh, ideologies play out in a variety of different ways uh, to this day. And I think, again, helping to understand the sets of ideas that are animating these are really, really important. Another way that we, I think, should look at continuities, there's many differences between the way that the eugenic temptation, if you will, operates uh, today from how it operated in the past. But one of the other things we need to look at is how um, what historians have called positive eugenics and what we heard about in the uh, information about the Better Babies contests. How is that playing out today? And here's where some of the things that Alex talked about when we began our conversation come into play, where there's this utopian idea and an idea that science and secular accomplishments will be the way forward, technical ways forward. And here we link again to modern modern genetics and some of the ideas that we're starting to hear. And that we actually, you know, it's been a thread um, all along, but is now, in, just in the last year or so, getting louder about using genetic technologies, these new gene editing techniques, to produce improved or enhanced future generations. And some people speak of this in a, a grandiose way of seizing control of human evolution uh, to improve humanity, and others speak of it in a more individualized and personal way that we are going to have the best children, give our children the best start in life. But the kinds of... Um, modifications, if you will, the kinds of improvements that people talk about are really in line with the dominant view of society of who is the most fit, who is the most improved, what they look like, they're taller, they're stronger, what their uh, behavior is like, you know, they're intelligent in a certain way. And these are things that I think are part of this continuum of the eugenic temptation that we need to be aware of. Mm-hmm. So, Marcy, I'm going to um, play the role of a listener to this. And so there's probably somebody someplace listening to this and saying, look, there's an important distinction to be made. When we're talking about the, the, the sterilizations that we, that we heard about in, in, in the story, those, that was an example of a government entity or a state entity um, sterilizing an individual and taking away the re- reproductive capacity. That's fundamentally different from what we see today with regards to individuals using new technologies to, in a sense, make sure that the offering that people have will be healthy and fully functional. That is, um, uh, eugenics, um, if it's going to have any meaning, is an example of where the state takes away uh, some type of re- reproductive cap- capacity from uh, somebody without their consent or choice. But in modern times, with regards to uh, the free markets and choices that people have to use assisted reproductive technologies and other human biotechnologies to have healthy children, that can't be reasonably seen as eugenic. Is that an, is that an appropriate response? Or, it's, or, or, or are there, are there continu- hidden continuities that we should be more attentive to? I'm glad you asked that. Um, it really is important to acknowledge and recognize the differences between eugenics of the past and the forced sterilizations that we heard about and um, what, we, what we're seeing today. But I think it is also important to look at the continuities and look at the underlying worldviews 
And I think we've talked about some of those, the kind of technocratic idea that the best way to improve humanity is with these kind of techno fixes rather than with the social changes based on social justice that I think is where we need to be looking if we're going to improve the human condition. Um, and I think also it's really important to acknowledge that some of the those who advocate using modern genetic tools to enhance humanity as a species or to produce enhanced children, they understand it as what they've called, some have called a liberal eugenics, that the only thing wrong with eugenics in the past was that it was mandated by the state. And that we can imagine a good eugenics of today that um, there might be commercial pressures and forces. And in fact, there would be, I think, if this was developed, there would be important commercial uh, and profit motives involved. Um, but that this kind of modern eugenics would have nothing wrong with it, that if we had lots of people making decisions to have children who would have a better start in life, say, that that would not have serious social, dire social consequences. I'm afraid that it could have dire social consequences and that it could exacerbate the kinds of discrimination and inequality that we currently live with and all too readily accept, um, and that it could create entirely new kinds of discrimination and inequality based on um, supposed, purported genetic enhancements. I wonder who decides the utopian human being. Um, the Supreme Court, in Jess Engberson's story, came down in support of sterilization to, to get rid of the feeble-minded We've had enough of those. Oliver Wendell Holmes was quoted indirect. I'm paraphrasing. But who decides today who is that? And that's where so many of the issues that you've brought up in this conversation make me nervous. Who's the deciding? And, it, and is there someone, is there a God figure in our society that can make that decision that is then reinforced with regulations through the law? And even if there wasn't uh, a God committee or someone in that capacity making these decisions, I think if we put this out on the free market, then the danger is that the traits that would be selected by parents who might have every good motive of, of uh, just, you know, having their children have every opportunity available to them, that those parents would still choose according to what traits are socially valued. You know, we know that taller people tend to make more money in their lifetimes, and so do people with paler skin. And so I think we might find ourselves um, without anybody, any God committee or any tyrannical government pronouncing on traits. We might still find ourselves in a world we really don't want to live in. We've been speaking with Osagi Obasagi, professor of law at UC Hastings, San Francisco, and author of Blinded by Sight. Marcy Darnovsky, executive director at the Center for Genetics and Society in Berkeley. Alexandra Minnestern, professor at the University of Michigan, joined us by phone. And Milton Reynolds is senior program associate with Facing History and Ourselves. You've been listening to Life of the Law's first bonus episode. We would love to hear your feedback about the format and content of our conversation. Did you love it? Hate it? Want more of it? Send us an email at connect at lifeofthelaw.org. 
Stay tuned next week when we return with our feature episode, Live in Nashville. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.